And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, January 17th, 2024, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, veterans get lip service when it comes to small business loans, plus A tiny agency aims to help libraries and museums everywhere, big time. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, the IRS is gearing up for this year's tax filing season. The threat of a rolling government shutdown, though, could complicate things. Congressional leaders say they've got a deal worked out to avoid that shutdown, but are looking at instead another stopgap spending bill to buy themselves more time. For more on how this all adds up, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Let's talk about the IRS and its concerns about a government shutdown, which they did publicly voice, Jory. The IRS is looking to start the filing season on January 29th, and no matter what the funding situation looks like, the plan is for them to start that filing season on time. What they are up against, however, is Congress trying to avert a two-tier government shutdown. The first deadline, the most immediate one coming up, is January 19th. That would, if Congress doesn't act. That would trigger a partial government shutdown for some agencies. And for the rest of government, the other shutdown deadline would be February 2nd. And what we heard recently from IRS Commissioner Danny Werfel is that the IRS would be impacted by that second deadline, the February 2nd one. But he does say that the IRS would be exempt in some ways for filing season preparations. And he says the worry is not that the filing season would be delayed, but that it would increase the risk that they don't have as smooth a filing season as they intended. Of course, we will do everything in our power to minimize the disruptions that a shutdown would have on filing season. But as many of us have experienced who've been through government shutdowns before, if you're outside the government looking in, they can be very disruptive and very chaotic. And so I worry about the risks that the shutdown uh, presents on all IRS operations. Then that comes back to the idea of the spending bill, and it has kind of mixed results for IRS, doesn't it? Yeah, so this deal at a very high level, it agrees with the uh, the debt ceiling negotiations that transpired last year. What it would mean for the IRS is that it would speed up a timeline for already pre-agreed to spending cuts through the Inflation Reduction Act. The IRS, of course, got $80 billion initially through that legislation and As part of this deal, they rolled that money back to about $60 billion for them to spend through the decade to do things like rebuild its workforce and modernize its legacy IT. And the idea was that they would split that up. They would have a $10 billion cut in 2024, and they would have a $10 billion cut in 2025. And what the latest negotiations mean is that they would just do that as one lump sum $20 billion cut. And when asked about this, Werfel said that this won't really have any immediate impact to the IRS's modernization plans the way that they've outlined them so far. But he says that it might be something that the IRS and the administration down the line would have to deal with towards the end of this decade scope of spending. My hope is that as we demonstrate the positive impact that IRA funding is having for all taxpayers, that there will be a need and a desire amongst policymakers at that time 
to restore IRS funding so that we can continue the momentum that's having a very positive impact. And just to be clear, it's not really a cut that they're getting. It is the lack of boost that was promised in the Inflation Reduction Act. Yeah, I mean, it's a glass half full, glass half empty situation where uh, it's not money that they've uh, you know tapped into at this point. It's just a narrowing of the, the windfall that they were expecting. Right. So in Washington terms, that's a cut. But in normal people, that means an increase I'm not going to get. So it feels like a cut, I guess, if they had it spent already or planned on spending it. And of course, IRS is home of the National Treasury Employees Union principally. What do they say about all of this? Yeah, well, with this lead up to a potential government shutdown deadline, NTEU, they wrote a letter to congressional leaders uh, basically telling them to you know get this deal over the finish line. And the NTU president reminded them of the impact of the last government shutdown that was. This is the historic 35-day shutdown back in 2019. And what that meant was at the time, about 800,000 federal employees didn't get two of their paychecks on time and denied critical government services to the American people. You saw the kinds of things like uh, food stamps considered as something that they wouldn't be able to you know, pay out in time. And it just caused all kinds of problems, unique problems that a lot of these agencies didn't think of at the time. Right. And of course, they were at that point recovering from the fact that they were out of the office because of COVID for a couple of years and were still finding mail that hadn't even been opened. So, yeah, it does feel like it would be a setback for them not to continue on the progress they've had, say, in the past 12 months. What's new? What can we expect about this year's filing season in particular? What's Werfel saying there? Yeah, a couple things going on there. Uh, one big change for this filing season is that it will be the launch of a direct file pilot for uh, some taxpayers in some states, about a dozen states. It's limited in eligibility. Not everyone can just go ahead and sign up. It's limited to residents of about those dozen states. These are generally states that uh, don't have a state income tax, so it just is only that federal filing you have to worry about. There's some limits on what sources of income people can go ahead and do this filing with, generally reduced to uh, people who have a W-2. So people who are principally gig workers, this wouldn't be something that they could do. One other thing to look at here is that the IRS is really ramping up its digitization efforts and trying to make it easier for taxpayers if they get a letter in the mail, not having to jump on the phone and get through to the agency or send some snail mail correspondence back that they can, in fact, you know, go online and and respond to the agency that way and get a faster turnaround. As you mentioned a moment ago, Tom, you know, that is one piece of things where the IRS still is reeling from delays is the the paper correspondence. And that was one major pain point during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic for them. And of course, they are trying to modernize their systems. What's the latest there? One thing we have heard recently from the IRS is that after this filing season, April beyond, they are going to be working on a 2.0 version of the individual master file, kind of the engine that powers each uh, year's filing season and the file that the IRS has on every individual taxpayer. That is something that they're going to be looking at for not this year, but next year to put into practice. But this will be really the year that they look under the hood of that modernized effort and and really try to put it all together. One other thing to highlight here is that the IRS using this Inflation Reduction Act funding has beefed up its enforcement. And there is some recent updates on, on how that's 
paying out. Since last fall, the IRS has collected about $520 million in taxes owed, and this is stemming mostly from 900 cases where millionaires were not paying their full tax obligations. This is just the tip of the iceberg. The IRS has identified about 1,600 total cases of millionaires in this very situation, and revenue agents are assigned to these cases, and they're going to see what else they can uh, find as far as tax revenue that they haven't collected on. And they've also hired some people. Yeah, yeah, and not just uh, the volume of people, but how quickly they've been able to bring them on board. The IRS in late 2023, they hired about 560 skilled accountants. They highlighted one hiring event in Texas late last year where they brought about 160 of these people on board in a matter of a couple of days. That's significant because it usually takes somewhere in the neighborhood of four to six months to get these people on board. They streamlined on the hiring steps. Werfel did say that this is something that they want to really work on is get that time to hire down for all of its hires because the kinds of people that they want they can't afford to wait around months for a new job. Sounds like progress. And let's hope that money is steady and predictable. I think that's more important even than necessarily the amount. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Check out all of his coverage at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, a tiny agency aims to help libraries and museums everywhere. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. A small federal agency has launched an initiative to strengthen a highly specialized class of museums in the United States. The Institute of Museum and Library Services is taking in internship applications from American Latino museums to, in its words, strengthen their institutional capacity. Here with details of the program, the Institute's Deputy Director for Museum Services, Laura Huerta Migas. Ms. Migas, good to have you with us. Great to be with you, Tom. And I have to begin with the Institute of Museum and Library Services. In 16 and a half years of hosting this show, I don't think this agency has ever been on. And I like to kid people, I know everything there is to know about the federal government, but I don't know about this institute. So let's begin with what the institute is all about, because I suspect there are other feds that don't know. You're not the first one to be hearing about us for the first time, but we're hoping that's going to be a rarer occurrence as we move forward. IMLS, the Institute of Museum and Library Services, is an independent executive branch agency. We consider ourselves one of the three sister cultural agencies, along with the National Endowment for the Arts and the National Endowment for the Humanities. We are the federal government's largest funder of libraries and museums and function primarily as a grant-making agency. And you also have an external board drawn from people that are operating in museums and libraries, which is a little bit unusual. That's correct. We do have a presidentially appointed board, the National Museum and Library Services Board, that is made up of 20 to 22, depending on the time of year, representatives and leaders from the library and museum sectors. And the grant making that you do, what's the rough total that goes out every year? So right now, our appropriations are right around $257 million a year to the nation's libraries and museums. 
about two thirds of our funding goes out through our grants to states programs that funds libraries, public libraries, primarily at the state level. And then the balance of our funding is disseminated through competitive grant programs. And about 53 million of those dollars are dedicated to museum competitive grant programs. And looking at museums in the United States, is it fair to say that they are becoming more specialized or that more specialized focused museums are springing up? I mean, that's what I see from what I read, but you tell me what the trends are. Sure. I might say that museums are becoming much more community focused and really the services in IMLS, Museum and Library Services, is really referring to the fact that our agency funds that public service function of both museums and libraries. And so what we are seeing is that there are more museums that are really coming up from the grassroots that are community established, community curated, and are often telling the stories of specific communities. And when I say communities, that's a really broad term. Sometimes it's a neighborhood. And sometimes it is, again, based in specific cultural heritages as well. Interesting. So is one of the challenges of these museums then to get people not from the neighborhood to stop in and take a look? I would say yes to that. And, you know, most people don't know that the United States is actually very unique in the world that we have community-based museums. In most other countries, museums are government entities, you know, they're funded by states, by the federal government, and their content is really curated that way as well. And the United States Museum community is quite different and quite localized. And so it makes for a really rich marketplace, but it means that the ways of supporting those museums is also really distributed and diverse. And that presents both opportunities and challenges for these institutions. And there are privately owned museums that are open to the public. Are those sometimes eligible for federal grants? Actually, not in our program. So IMLS only funds nonprofit museums that are open to the public at least 120 days a year. And nonprofit can include 501c3 independent institutions, as well as museums that are on college campuses or even parts of other types of agencies and organizations like hospitals, etc. Must be nonprofit. It could be in private hands, but nonprofit. Correct. We are speaking with Lauda Huerta Migas, Deputy Director for Museum Services at the Institute of Museum and Library Services. And let's get to the program now where you are looking at internships and fellowships for those from Latino museums. Tell us more about what's going on. So this new program, whose acronym is OMIFI, the American Latino Museum Internship and Fellowship Initiative, is our first standalone funding program out of a brand new appropriation we received as part of the establishment of the National Museum of the American Latino in 2020. And as part of the establishment of that museum, In the legislation, there is a section that creates a new grant program to support American Latino museums. And this actually follows a pattern 
started with the establishment of the National Museum of African American History and Culture, which also created a similar grant program to support African American focused museums here at IMLS. All right. And this sounds like fellowships, internships, doesn't sound like grants. So what is the actual program designed to do here? Thank you so much for that question. Yes, we are not funding individual fellowships and internships. What we are funding in this grant program are actually partnerships between universities and museums to create fellowships and internships that are focused on Latino studies, American studies, to really help build that pipeline and workforce that has expertise in sharing, preserving, and educating around the contributions of Latinos to the American story. Because the release mentions the increase in capacity of these museums. So it sounds like an increase in the human capital capacity of museums. That's correct. The grassroots nature of many of these institutions means that they are not often able to access or have visibility as a future employer to students and scholars that are creating these careers and expertise in Latino culture. And so we really see this program as a way to accelerate the connections and the career pipeline between these institutions and then the students that universities are supporting in these studies. So the grants would go to these smaller institutions who would then create fellowships and internships for people studying Latino culture. That's correct. And all of the internships and fellowships that are established as part of these programs are paid internships and fellowships. This is part of the requirements of the grant program so that it really is setting up a trajectory for real employment. And it gives the institutions time to really understand and flex so that they're ready to support those future professionals. And do you monitor how the museums, such as the Latino museums or any kind of specialized community museums, to ensure that they have some reasonable way of displaying things in a way that is historically accurate, that honors what happened in reality, but on the other hand, is viewable and digestible by everybody? So I would say that there's yes and no. Our grantees are all required to provide regular reporting to us throughout the life of their grant. But as a grant maker, IMLS is not an editor of the content. However, in this program, we also do strongly encourage that they include an external evaluator throughout the program that is helping to serve as that third-party reflector on the success and the challenge of implementation of the program. Right, because you can present history, for example, in terms of verbs of what people did, but you can leave the adverbs out and let people judge for themselves. Yeah, and that's really part of the learning process as we learn about how to bring scholarship from the university um, and from a really sometimes theoretical environment, to translating that for public education and knowledge. And we really see that as a really important place for building capacity and, again, giving the opportunity for emerging professionals 
to learn that side by side with the leaders of these community-based institutions that have really been the stewards of these very important life experiences and histories. And can these grants cover museums that want to increase capacity for being good museums in the sense that they can house and preserve artifacts? Because if you, say, have an old piece of art or an ancient document or 300-year-old document, those take specific technical treatment to make sure that they stay preserved, and maybe small museums need help on that front also. This particular program does not cover what we would call collection stewardship. All of those needs that you mentioned fall under that umbrella. However, we do offer eight other museum programs, about half of which have opportunities for museums to get that specific support around improving the management and preservation of their collections. And so there is an overlap in eligibility, and we often have museums that are successful in more than one of our programs to support these different specific needs. What else do people who might want to apply for these grants need to know? Our deadline is March 1st, and the grant amounts are from 100000 to $750,000. And you have a public event to uh, talk more about it. We do. We are holding a webinar on January 17th, and you can register to attend that webinar on our website, imls.gov. Lauda Huerta Migas is Deputy Director for Museum Services at the Institute of Museum and Library Services. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, contractors can be forgiven if they're grumpy this month. But first, veterans get lip service when it comes to small business loans. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Veterans who want to start businesses often turn to the Small Business Administration for loans. The SBA is obligated to give them special consideration. But the Government Accountability Office finds SBA doesn't really have the procedures in place to deal with veterans. More now from the GAO's Managing Director for Financial Markets, Daniel Garcia-Diaz. Dan, good to have you back. Thank you for having me. What is the law here? This is a statutory requirement for SBA in terms of how it deals with requests from veterans. What is that? Let's start there. Yeah, so the statute is very general, but it does require SBA to ensure that lenders are giving special consideration for veteran status. And what does that mean? That means a variety of things. And the regulations that SBA has implemented have focused on ensuring that lenders are responding to applications in a prompt manner. It also says in closed questions where the lender may be kind of considering on the edge of approving or not approving to give it a closer look and generally kind of try to work with the borrower to to make a decision in favor of the borrower. But of course, we look at those regulations and any policies and procedures that SBA has in place, and we found that, well, they were as vague as what I just described. And so we were concerned on how the lenders are going to operationalize those requirements. 
And just how does this work? These are private sector lenders that have sanction from the SBA or they have some kind of a dispensation, or are these loan programs among the SBA's many loan channels? Yes. So there are multiple programs. In this report, we looked at three different types of small business programs. And SBA relies on lenders and sometimes community development corporations as well to provide loans to the small businesses. And they're the ones, these private entities, are the ones that are doing the underwriting of these loans. And they have to follow strict procedures that SBA lays out for them. And in return, SBA can provide a guarantee on part of that loan. Got it. And this is a program that is longstanding. What prompted GAO to look at it at this point in history? Because these go back decades, right? They do. And there was congressional interest in ensuring that veterans have access to capital, and particularly capital that's coming from these federal resources. That's why we looked into the matter. And we continue to hear these concerns over time that veterans sometimes may be struggling a little bit more in, that compared to non-veteran businesses in obtaining capital. And there's a range of reasons why the veterans can uh, experience some difficulties. And just briefly, what are those as an aside? Sure. And so some of the difficulties that veterans may find is that the lenders are looking for work experience, right? And so the, the veterans have to explain a military service is work experience, valuable work experience that could be applicable to starting up or expanding your small business. Other challenges that they'll find is that a lot of the rules and some of the benefits that accrue to veterans aren't transparent. They don't always don't know about it, so they may not even ask for it. And of course, veterans are going to experience many of the same challenges that other businesses face, for instance, high interest rates and things like that. But those are some of the issues that veterans run into. Some of the studies we've looked at also kind of point to veterans experiencing slightly higher rates of rejection of loan applications. But what we also find is that veterans tend to eventually get the credit that they need, but that it suggests that they often have to shop for willing lenders. We're speaking with Daniel Garcia-Diaz, Managing Director for Financial Markets and Community Investment at the Government Accountability Office. And so you're recommending that SBA sort of quantify or tighten up the language surrounding special consideration. That seems like a tough thing to do without ordering people to automatically approve every veteran application. What could SBA do, do you think? Part of it is providing examples and details of how might a, say, close case look like and what are some options for making successfully accepting the application. But of course, you have to balance that with sound underwriting practices. As you say, you don't want to just approve anyone who's a veteran. You want to have a sound loan. But providing more details on the types of cases defining concepts of, you know, if you're going to review applications promptly, what exactly does that mean? And it is difficult, but working with lenders and the experiences that they have, they can come up with more details to ensure that all the lenders that are participating in these SBA programs have kind of a common starting point to evaluate these applications and take action. Right now, it's not so clear. And in fact, in some of our conversations with lenders, lenders will often tell us, hey, we review veteran-owned business applications just like we do everyone else. Well, that would suggest that you're not aware of the special considerations. So providing a lot more details in their policies and procedures for the lenders, I think, would help significantly. 
Now, one of your recommendations is, and I'll just read it, the administrator of SBA should ensure that the associate administrator of the Office of Veterans Business Development develop and implement policies and procedures for ensuring full compliance with quarterly year-end reporting requirements. So it sounds like there's some procedural things and the ability to get knowledge of the extent of loan programs for veterans might be lacking in the first place. Correct. And that recommendation focuses on SBA-supported outreach centers that are all over the U.S. Right now, there's about 28 of them, and they provide training and information to veterans on how to start up a business, how to grow your business. And these centers, and they can be nonprofits, they can be universities, they apply for a grant, they receive a grant from SBA to administer the outreach. They're supposed to set goals for themselves and report on whether they're achieving it to SBA. And what we found in 17 out of 21 cases that we looked at, that they weren't reporting their objectives, their targets, and whether they're meeting them. And so SBA really has to tighten their monitoring of these centers to ensure that they are delivering the counseling, the technical assistance, the training that they're being asked to do. And if the SBA does develop more precise language and use cases and so forth for the lending institutions to make solid the idea of preference for veterans or special consideration, I should say, then what is the obligation of lending institutions to accept those and and adopt them? Well, the lenders will, when they administer these programs, they are looking to SBA's policies and procedures because it's important for them to meet the rules of the program so that SBA will honor the guarantee if there should be a default. And so they are motivated to follow whatever instructions they get from SBA and to the extent that SBA can provide a lot more clarity on what they mean by special considerations, that's going to help the lenders follow through on it. But of course, you have to supplement that with monitoring and oversight just in general over the lenders, which is also part of a bigger and broader issue at SBA. Right. Does SBA have the institutional capacity to do this level of scrutiny on a pretty big program? given everything else that's on the SBA's plate. Correct. And as we showed in the report, veteran-owned businesses receiving SBA assistance can account for anywhere between 2.1% and 5% of the loans made under these programs. It's an important population to keep an eye on, and of course, Congress flagged it for SBA, but it is one population among many that SBA has to be keeping tabs on. And what was SBA's reaction to this latest report? They generally agreed with all the recommendations, but interestingly, they also cited regarding the special considerations language that they really didn't think it was necessary, that they provide a lot of flexibilities you know, for lenders to implement those special consideration. But as we pointed out, and as we heard from the lenders, there's not a lot of clarity around this and how to operationalize it when you're underwriting a loan. Daniel Garcia-Diaz is Managing Director for Financial Markets and Community Investment at the GAO. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to that report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, contractors can be forgiven if they're grumpy this month. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Another continuing resolution looming, 
agencies in limbo on starting new projects, some unfortunate protest rulings. No wonder federal contractors are nervous about calendar 2024. Here with one take on the situation, or several takes, federal sales and marketing consultant Larry Allen. And Larry, it looks like there's sort of weird news everywhere you look. But I wanted to start with something a little bit arcane. There was, as you're writing about compliance, three recent developments companies need to know to stay on the right side of the ledger, including when low price can get you into trouble. Let's give the thumbnails of what's going on there. So, Tom, these are three recent decisions that all came out of various judicial enclaves. And I think it's they are things that contractors need to know about. First up, We talk so much about low price technically acceptable in the federal government today. A lot of contractors can come away with the sometimes false impression that low price rules always and everywhere. And yet there was a recent case that showed that a company actually bid an unrealistically low amount for a potential project. Now, Tom, I've been in this business for a while, and this is certainly not the first time that I've seen this. But it's an important reminder because we actually don't see it that often. If you're a government contractor and you're bidding on a project, you have to bid a reasonable price and you have to bid competitively. But that doesn't mean that you try to buy the business by coming in so low that the government just rejects your bid out of hand because they know from previous experience that they're not going to be able to rely on people to provide labor in critical areas unless that labor is compensated at a certain level. And that was what was really at the core here. The second issue that I'm talking about this week has to do with whether or not your confidential information is actually confidential. And this is something that is really front of mind and should be for a lot of government contractors, specifically, Tom, talking here about a federal uh, district court judge So a judge that doesn't normally deal day-to-day with government contract issues, he made a ruling on a Freedom of Information Act request. The Department of Labor had originally uh, withheld information on over a 1,000 companies' equal employment opportunity reports, their summary reports, citing confidentiality and important company information. Well, the petitioner for the Freedom of Information Act request went back and appealed that decision in federal court and the court sided with the petitioner. As a result, the equal employment opportunity information from over a thousand companies is going to be released. And released to who? Well, in this case, Tom, it's going to be a fellow member of the fourth estate from where you are. So contractors may expect to see that you know their reporting uh, on their goals on this important government area may be out in the open for uh, others to see, their competitors to see. Sure. It'd be interesting. Yeah, and it always pays to venue shop when you're in court because you can get different results depending on where you go. And your third issue has to do with firm fixed price contracts that can really sink you. Tom, that's you know, firm fixed price contracting has been looked at, particularly in the government, as the highest good, the one to aim for in government acquisition because that way everybody understands what the parameters are. Well, yes and no, Tom. If you're a government contractor, you have to always remember that firm fixed price bids come with inherent risk for you as the contractor. You have to be very sure that the government's got the statement of work down correctly and that you as the company understand the scope of work before you bid that firm fixed price offer. 
And a lot of companies understand that in the government and bid accordingly. They give themselves a little wiggle room, if you will, and appropriately so. But however, the extreme case that I'm talking about here that should be of interest to everybody is Boeing uh, and their tanker deal. Right now, the company has lost over $2 billion, $2 billion that's not recoverable. And as they say in Joel James Bond movies, Tom, it's $2 billion and counting. And that's a lot of money, even if you're Boeing. So that's a wake-up call to contractors that you should really understand what the risks are. And if you're not sure about what the parameters are, have those discussions with the client before you sign on the dotted line. And let's hope those tanker doors stay shut. We're speaking with Larry Allen, president of Allen Federal Business Partners. And I wanted to ask you about uh, your take on we've been watching the Congress. And as Mitchell Miller reported here yesterday, there was some movement over last weekend where maybe we're moving toward a CR of indeterminate length and the really confusing situation. And if a CR were to go through March, that's essentially half the fiscal year. And contractors have got to be just not happy about this any more than their agency customers are. Tom, I think that's fair to say. This is really no way to run a government. You know, we had been hoping to see appropriated bills for FY24 in December. Certainly February was not unrealistic to expect. Now we're being told that it'll either be, I think, March 1st or March 8th or 9th uh, before we get all of the bills together. And if you listen to Tom Cole over on the House side, he's kind of hinting that they may even need a longer time to read through all 12 appropriations bills on their side of Congress. So I think that's something that should be of concern to everybody. Uh, It does not set up uh, the government or contractors for a very good uh, FY24. You know, at best, you know, Congress does pass these bills in uh, March it will be you know, early to mid-April, Tom, before each uh, individual federal office gets its final number for the remaining months of the fiscal year. And then we're really going to see a tremendous amount of activity and churn. And you know, what happens when anybody has less than half the amount of time needed to do the job right? Well, you're going to have mistakes made. You're going to have things that need to get done that don't quite get done. You're going to have a lot of missed opportunities, a lot of missed opportunities in government business. A lot, of, And when you're talking about funding critical government programs and moving forward, it's not just, oh, gee, you know, we didn't get to go to the Taylor Swift concert. It's something that's going to have a little bit more national impact than that. Uh, sorry to all the Swifties out there who listen to your show. But, you know, there are some priorities out there that, uh, may not get done, and that's a real issue. And then, of course, we'll have the oversight hearings uh, next year on why that happened. Nobody really is going to say, but they should. Well, well, Congressman, if you pass the bills on time, this might not have happened. Yeah, what we can expect if there are appropriations at the March deadline, again, we don't know what it is yet, that's going to mean very busy contracting officers, the COs, the 1102s, get a lot of work dumped on them late in the year. And for vendors, it becomes a matter of finding a contracting officer that has the capacity to take on what it is you need for your program to buy. Well, that's right. I think we're going to be seeing uh, two things, Tom. First, every bit of work that can be done on a project up until the actual execution of the RFP or RFQ is going to be done. 
So if you're waiting for the funds to come out as a contractor before you talk to your agency, you're going to be way behind the curve because I think a number of federal agencies are going to have projects that are, to borrow an older phrase, shovel ready uh, to get going the second they get the appropriations in their accounts. Uh, What we're also going to see is, you know, just accelerated use of assisted acquisition services. There are only so many contracting officers in government to go around. And we've seen already the assisted acquisition operations in the General Services Administration, the Department of Interior, and even over at NIH, all increase in popularity before this happened. Every person with a government contracting warrant is going to be busy from probably the middle of April to September 30th. Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. As always, thanks so much. Tom, thank you, and I wish your listeners happy selling. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Keep up on your schedule. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. The Office of Personnel Management had a relatively successful year chipping away at a large retirement inventory. You and I know that as a backlog. But now OPM must brace for a surge in federal retirement claims at the same time it's working on a big modernizing project. Here with more, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Drew, at the beginning of the year, that's when they can expect generally a surge in retirement claims. Is that the way it works? That is typically what we will see, Tom. So, for example, in 2023, uh, even though you had about 89,000 federal employees filed for retirement over the course of the entire year. About 12,400 of those claims were processed just in January by itself. Compare that to December, the month before, not even half that amount, just about 5,500 retirement claims were filed. A lot of federal employees like to retire at the very end of the calendar year, December 31st, or the first day of the new year, just because that kind of helps with financial benefits, or maybe you're trying to get a better cost of living adjustment. So there's a couple of different reasons feds might cho- choose to do that. But the numbers show that there definitely is a pretty significant uptake at the beginning of each calendar year for that. And for OPM to handle that surge, this is all done by hand, by paperwork. So is the way that they handle it is just brute force manpower. That's pretty much their plan each year. So OPM likes to staff up during January, February, March. And with more people, of course, that means the processing can go a little bit faster in advance. So a couple months ahead, they also try to, at least during 2023, they tried to be a little bit more proactive by offering information on how to reduce errors in applications. So getting ahead of that can help with the processing times. If there's nothing wrong with the application when it's submitted, then that should help speed things up a little bit. And of course, bringing more people on. OPM's Deputy Director Rob Shriver says that collaboration has other benefits as well. It's really a great exchange to have people who are doing the work at the agency side see the way that it happens at OPM. So they can not only help us during the surge period, but then take that knowledge back to their agencies. And we also learn from the agencies uh, when we're working side by side with them, uh, what their pain points are. And Drew, you've reported that at the end of last year, the retirement claim, they call it inventory, I guess we'll go with inventory, but it's ones that are people are waiting to get their final annuity. Let's put it that way. Just give us a rundown on the numbers. The numbers are actually really looking pretty good right now, Tom. Currently, there are about 14,300 cases sitting in the inventory uh, or backlog, however, what, which way you want to cut it. Uh, it's actually the smallest 
retirement claims backlog backlog that OPM has had since December 2017, when there was about that same number of cases. So if you look from the beginning of 2023, so in January up until December, just last month, they reduced the case inventory overall by 34%. So that means the cases in the inventory are now one third less than they were before. Now we're seeing about 15,000 or so cases, 36,000 pending claims a couple of years ago. So they've had some major progress there. However, on the other side, the case inventory is still pretty significantly above what they call their steady state goal. So OPM has this goal of having 13,000 pending retirement claims at any given time. Right now, they're about 1,200 cases above that. So they're looking to improve that a little bit further, I believe. But they've also been trending in the right direction in terms of how long it takes to process a claim. It's a little bit over uh, 60 days right now on average. And there's also been a decreasing number of cases going into their system that come in with errors. So that's uh, an important step as well. They're also at the same time trying to improve retirement services. I guess that's what you might call OPM's customer experience drive. And so that's separate from what they need to do to process the claims. What are they doing on that improvement side for retirement services? Right, Tom, as you mentioned, the process as it stands right now is pretty much entirely paper-based and that can slow things down pretty significantly. So what they're trying to do is undergo this really big modernization project. It's not something necessarily new that OPM is trying, but they're trying it in a slightly different way this time. They're looking, for example, to take a couple smaller steps. They launched a retirement online application pilot. They launched a chatbot pilot. So that answers a couple basic questions about retirement. Those are a couple small steps they took during 2023 to try to chip away at this large modernization project. OPM's Deputy Director Rob Shriver says that the agency is trying to essentially learn from the past. There have been efforts in the past to do it as one big modernization that haven't been as successful. And so we're just kind of chipping away at that, taking um, kind of a modular approach to making sure that, you know, we're modernizing the entire system. But in the meantime, we have people that need to be served and they need to be served um, quickly and effectively. The essential problem here, Drew, right, is that to figure out someone's annuity, you have to know exactly where they worked, under what particular rules or regulations they worked, and for exactly how much time they worked and what their particular salary was and what that therefore contributed to that final annuity over the course of a long career. So if someone joined agriculture department at 22 and left at 62, that's pretty easy. But people that worked at 10 different agencies, maybe under different authorities, maybe outside of the GS for a while, inside the GS for a while, and so on, which is not all that untypical, it becomes this exercise in logic and calculation. Am, am I describing it right? I think you are right in the sense that there are a lot of different pitfalls or different points along the, the path that applicants can make mistakes. OPM maybe won't catch a mistake early. Maybe the employing agency won't see something, and so it can really extend the processing time. I've heard from a lot of federal employees and retirees who, you know, even though the wait time is on average, as OPM says, about 60 or so days to process the application, a lot of feds are waiting much longer than that. You know, sometimes it can be six months. I've heard cases where it takes up to a year or two years to process that retirement application. And I think that's where you're seeing a lot of the more 
immediate frustration from federal employees and retirees. So at the same time that OPM is trying to take on this big modernization project, they're also trying to balance, okay, who are the federal retirees and employees who need help right now? And how can we help them? Right. And so what their answer, one of the answers is been around for many years. They give you what they think is close to your actual annuity minus a certain amount for safety. And then when they actually figure it out, you get that back pay of your annuity. And then from then on, you get your proper annuity. That is one way that they're trying to address it. They also just last year released what they call a retirement quick guide that tries to explain the process a little bit more transparently to anyone who's retiring because they get a lot of questions about, you know, where is my application in the process or why isn't it processed yet? So they're trying to get out ahead of it a little bit, in a sense, and try to help federal employees where they can. Uh, But one other thing, you know, I also recently reported on improper payments through retirement services. That's an interesting angle of this as well. There have been a lot, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in overpayments to federal annuitants that they try to recover over time, but there's a lot of error throughout the entire process. It's not just on the application end as well. Right. And so the other question now, there could be a government shutdown, and we don't know how long it would be if there was. And during that time, what happens? Do they still process claims? It's a little bit complicated. OPM, on OPM's side of things, they continue to work during a shutdown. Their retirement services staff stays continuing working as normal. But that doesn't necessarily mean that applications will get processed at the same speed because it'll depend on the employing agency as well. So depending on what your own agency is doing and if their retirement services staff or their HR staff are not working or get furloughed, then you might start to see some delays. Maybe your application is still with your agency and not with OPM yet. That means that you might not see your application process right away. So that's where you might see see some the backlog grow if we were to see a shutdown. Or you can work forever, but I don't think anyone wants to do that. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin. 